0: I'll tell you a little story on Pastor Brian. uh, He asked me to speak in the next installment of our series in Acts, and he said, I'm asking you to do this week because no one else wants to preach this passage. (laughs) I said, well, thank you, Pastor. You're so kind. Thank you for uh, sacrificing me on the altar of the pulpit. But with the difficulty of this passage in mind and with my frailty in mind, Isn't it good that we have the Holy Spirit as our teacher uh, to open our hearts to what only one voice in the universe says, only the gospel, only the voice of God speaks this kind of truth. The world either doesn't have any idea of it or speaks against it. And so we're here to encounter not just the truth of the Bible, but the God who is the truth. May it be so. One of my favorite stories is Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. And while a movie always does injustice to the book, uh, one scene from the cartoon movie that still sticks out to me was at the end of the film when Baloo the bear, in order to protect his friend Mowgli, catches the enemy, Shere Khan the tiger, by the tail to protect Mowgli from the tiger. But because Baloo is holding onto the tail, the tiger takes off running and causes Baloo to crash into rocks and trees and brush. And seeing the beating that Baloo is taking by holding onto the tail, Mowgli and the other animal friends start shouting out, Baloo, let go of the tail. Just let go. And Baloo's, uh, Baloo the bear's response is, Are you kidding? There's teeth at the other end. <laughs> the reason that scene captured me was not just because of the humor of the moment, but it actually reminds me in a strange way Of one of the challenges to my faith and and perhaps to yours, I find myself sometimes holding on to the nicer part of God, as if to control him, as if to coax him into doing things my way, as if I can get a hold of a God who will do it the way I wish he would do it. And at the same time, all the while I'm I'm trying to avoid his teeth. The hard part of following Jesus, the trials that come my way, that cause my faith to weaken and cause my heart to doubt, surely that can't be from God. Surely that can't be what he wants. It's to be avoided at all costs. Trials are bad. Teeth are bad. But like it or understand it or not, just as the teeth and the tail are part of the tiger, So God's mercy and his sovereignty, his kindness and his mystery are all inseparable parts of God. I can't have God's grace without his discipline. I can't separate God's goodness from God's holiness. If God is not powerful enough to conquer sin and death through the cross of Jesus, then I am not forgiven and he can't possibly save me. But in order to save me and surround me with his grace and love, he has to be able to destroy death. The one who sings over us in Zephaniah 3 is the mighty warrior, mighty to save. The creator who gave my life has every right to take my life whenever he wants. And you know what? As a taxpaying, voting Citizen in the West. That just seems incongruent. Surely God must be less of something to be more of this. Surely He has to lessen His power to turn on His love, or lessen His love to really express His power in some severe way. Surely. Because that's certainly how I am. I'd like to talk to you about the both and aspects of God. The fact that we can't separate His love from His power. Lose His love, you lose His power. Lose his power, you lose his love. We'll talk more about that. A number of years ago, a friend of mine lost his son in a horribly violent car accident. It rocked his world, his family's world. It challenged their faith to the core. You may not have had that experience, but you you know of those experiences. We all do. We could all share stories of those times. We say, really, God? Have have mercy. Have you forgotten mercy? We could all tell our own stories about the times that God has, pardon me for saying it, he just seemed mean, random, capricious. He acts one way at this time for reasons we don't understand, and then it seems to be a completely different way. Who are you, God, and what are you doing? The Psalms are there. The book of Job is there to help us to have the courage to ask those questions honestly because God already knows that I'm thinking them. About six months after this horrible accident, <coughs> this friend and I, the friend who had lost his son, we were sitting together grieving and remembering when he took out his Bible and he showed me a scripture from Isaiah 50, 57. 57. The scripture talked about God removing people from the earth to save them from calamity. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that verse means. And I'm not sure that my friend interpreted it correctly or incorrectly, but this is what he said to me based on his understanding of that scripture. I believe that God took my son because my son was walking away from Jesus and taking back the life that he'd committed to Jesus. I believe that Jesus was not willing for that. So Jesus lovingly interrupted Grabbed my son and took him home. No more living the way you want. I would never have said that to that guy. Even if I thought it. But I realized when he said it that he had stumbled on a pillar of faith that was sustaining him in this horrible conundrum of a loving God who does things that just seem mean. He was able to stand in loyal love to that father. And the pillar that he stumbled on could be said this way <clears throat> God's kindness is holy, and God's holiness is kind. God's grace is just, and God's justice is gracious. God's mercy is based on his perfect righteousness. But God's righteousness is merciful. God has a tail of deliverance and teeth of discipline. Jesus came to us, as John describes it, full of unending grace that can never be outraced by sin and yet full of uncompromising truth, 100% of each, not a, a total of 100%. 200%, full of unending grace, full of uncompromising truth. And somehow in the character of God, not in my understanding, but in the heart of God, these go together. And faith means putting them together, learning to see them together, the both and of God. Sheldon Van Auken, in his book Describing The pilgrimage of C.S. Lewis in the loss of his wife to cancer titles his book A Severe Mercy. Michael Card, in both his writing and his music, speaks of the cross of Jesus as a violent grace. Those are oxymorons intended to help us put the both and of God together. Severe mercy violent grace. This is our God beyond our understanding. Let, let me see if I can give you a feel of the texture of this both andness It's It's, in, it's throughout the scriptures, but let's um, first listen, and then I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you talk, too. Uh, tell me when this sounds dissonant. I'm going to read to you just a, a few verses from a passage I've used often in, in hospital visitation. But there are a couple verses I always leave out. I never read this in someone's someone's hospital room because you'll see why. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of my days formed for me, when as yet there were no days. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. <laughs> this is a schizophrenic psalm. <laughs> Viewed from a human perspective. That's how it sounds to us, right? You can't say that stuff in the same sentence. And out of my embarrassment and lack of understanding of God, I could never read all those verses in a hospital room. I just read the comforting ones The tale of God. I avoid the teeth because I can't put those together in a hospital room. It's not because there's something wrong with the word. It's because there's something wrong with my heart. Let me let you participate and feel the texture. There's a a psalm in the Bible that almost everyone knows half of. So this is your half. I'm going to read some verses, and you tell me when it starts to feel a little weird, okay? This is your response. I'm going to make a statement, then you respond with that after every statement. You ready? Here we go. To him who made the great lights... The sun to rule the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. He overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who struck down great kings. Yeah. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Did that start to feel weird? Yeah. There's a dissonance there. There's a both and dissonance because we're encountering the very character of God for whom there is no comparison. You can't have a question on the test that says, define God and give three examples. There's one God, and his character is perfect. We'll get to that in just a moment. Before we go on, I've tried to give you just a feel for what's going to happen in the story that Bill's going to come and read for us. Open a Bible, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 5, and please follow along as we encounter another both and dissonance story in God's word.
1: From Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, this first episode in Acts chapter 5 comes right on the heels of the end of chapter 4, obviously. But in that ending, chapter 4, we read that many believers who owned houses and lands sold them and brought the proceeds from the sale and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. As Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed.
0: Thank you. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we're praying not because it's the right thing to do before you preach, but because it's so easy for us to depend on the words of man or our own understanding. I find, Father, that no matter how hard I study or how much I pray, all I end up ever after my study is I end up with five loaves and two fishes to offer you. It's just not enough. But I thank you that we're not dependent on what I can offer. We're dependent on what you will say to us. Holy Spirit, please help me not get in the way this morning, will you please? Will you please help me to speak the unspeakable, to speak beyond the wisdom of man? Will you save me from myself and save these holy friends as well? I simply pray, as the psalmist prayed, right now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I want us to look quickly at three things as we consider this story, this text. First of all, God's sovereign plan and his authority, how he does stuff. Then secondly, God's character in perfect balance to understand what that both-and-ness is really about. And then our discipleship back in balance. How do we respond in a balanced way to this balanced God and his balanced work on the earth? As Bill um, just reminded us in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 2 of Acts, we hear about a church of generosity, a church of spirit empowerment, a church that understands that Jesus is in charge. Evidently, a reminder was needed, however. Amazing things were happening by the power of the Spirit. They were heady days, miracles, community, favor, proclamation, daily conversion, God adding to their number daily those who were being saved. They were on a spiritual high in verse 34 of chapter 4, Luke says makes this incredible statement that I've, I've never been able to fully grasp. There were no needy people among them. Can you imagine that being said about any church? There were no needy people. I, I've only ever been in churches where there are needy people and uh, the church was struggling to find a way to meet the needs. But in this church, for this time, for some reason unknown to me, there were no needy people among them at that time. Wow. Talk about a spiritual high. They're riding a wave. And chapter 4 ends this summary of this magnificent church. It's the only church that exists on the earth at the time. There's a summary that's, that highlights a particular act of generosity by a man known as the son of encouragement. That, that's what his name meant, the son of encouragement, Barnavas. Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And what he did was he happened to have a piece of land that he sold and took all of the proceeds and gave them to the church to make sure that the needy were cared for. I have more than I need. I want everyone to have what they need. Wonderful example. Perhaps Ananias and Sapphira thought that's what everybody had to do. Luke doesn't really tell us what the motivation was for what they did, but now come along a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who also have some land, and they sell it, and for reasons we're not told, they choose to only give part of it. Peter later says, they're certainly entitled to do that, give what you want, but instead of giving part and saying, you know, we're giving part of the sale of our land, here it is, they said, here's, we sold our land, and here's all that we received, and they give it to the apostles, please help the people in need in our church. Peter points out first to Ananias by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Peter could not have known this on his own. He points it out to Ananias first and then later to Sapphira. They come separately. That their dishonesty about what they'd given was not with Peter or the other apostles or even with just the church. They had lied to the Holy Spirit who lives in the heart of the church and the hearts of those who are loyal to Jesus. And so in lying... They had come against not just any spirit, but the Holy Spirit that is the core of the church. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had opposed Jesus himself, whether they knew it or not. And Peter not only revealed that, but points out what had really happened. And note, if you will, that the problem was not with the amount of money. Peter was not saying, You said you were giving the whole, you should have given the whole. Why were you so selfish? That was not the issue. Note also that Peter affirms additionally that what they gave was up to them. Give what you want. Just tell the truth. Don't take credit and don't give for credit. Give to Jesus. Give to the church with no desire for benefit. But whatever you do, tell the truth about it. Say what you did. Hearing the truth and Ananias' motives exposed right there, he, he fell down dead. Three hours later, his wife came, comes in, tells the same story. Peter exposes the same lie, and the three men that the, the men that carried out her husband came and got her body too. They were struck dead for lying about their giving. Did anyone here Bill retell the story this morning and think that's such a happy story? How kind of God. Did anyone think that? No, there's nothing in us that thinks that's that's a good thing. People should die for not giving properly in church. (laughs) I've often wondered I wonder if the giving went up the next week. (laughs) Or I wonder if Jerusalem Alliance Church never had any more problems financially. I don't know. And uh, we're not told it's probably a good thing. But what a story. And what a hard story to put in place. Let me paint the broad picture and then come in closer. Part of what's happening here is that God is opening a new chapter in the revelation of himself on the earth. Namely, the life of the church. The church is his new thing, his new revelation. It's just being formed. It's just been birthed. It's just coming alive, and God is shaping it. And it's important to put this, this story in line with a number of other stories throughout Scripture that seem mean of God. Like, man, that's a little overkill, don't you think? God, quite literally. It's important to put this story not just in perspective, but put it in line with other stories. There's a biblical pattern where God throughout history has made himself known, sometimes in very extreme and severe ways, as in this story but they're at very significant points in the unfolding of his plan for his people and for the world. And this is one of those junctures. Let's back up, though, first and take a running start into this story. Let me remind you of a few here on the screen. In Leviticus Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's son, Aaron is the high priest of Israel, newly installed, and his sons Nadab and Abihu are also appointed to be priests. One day, they get really excited in an encounter with God, and... Outside of the command of God about uh, carrying incense and fire into God's presence, they kind of do it their own way. And God kills them on the spot and says to Moses, this is to be done my way, not your way. God is establishing the priesthood, and he wants to make it very clear how the priesthood is to function. And so he jumps in in this act of disobedience, and he kills the disobeyers. In Numbers chapter 16, God is going to affirm the leadership of Moses and Aaron for the next 40 years of his people's journey. But the sons of Korah in Numbers 16 rise up and basically incite a coup. And they say, who is this Moses guy? Who is this Aaron guy? Not so much. And no sooner had they said it than the earth opened up, swallows up the sons of Korah, their families and all their possessions and closes up on them. Why? Why? God jumped in with his sovereign purpose and truth and said, this is how it's going to be because this is what I'm doing. In 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 2, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the the sons of Eli, are killed in a battle. They happen to be very disobedient priests. In fact, the scripture very unceremoniously calls them uh, these men were worthless men (laughs) and God had the plan to kill them. So the Philistines came, the battle ensued, and Hophni and Phinehas were killed because they'd made the priesthood a profit-making scheme and a sexually immoral opportunity. And God said, it's not going to be that way. First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 6, after Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle, during that same battle of the Philistines, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it to Ashdod, a city in uh, Philistine territory. Having that holy box in their temple, first of all, caused their God, their God Dagon, the statue, to fall down twice on its face before the Ark of God. But after that, there was disease and all kinds of terrible stuff that happened to them. And the Philistines said, we've got to get rid of this box. This is not good. Let's send it back to Israel. Let them deal with it. So they did. They put it on a cart, sent it back. And one of the cities, the first city they came to in Israel was Beth Shemesh. And the people saw it, they realized what it was, and they began to oh, lift up praise and shouts. oh, the ark is back, glory to God, he's with his people again. This box represented the power and the presence of God to his people, and they were rejoicing. And some of the men got a little overexcited and looked inside the ark, something that God had strictly forbidden, and God struck them dead. Why? because he was establishing his power and presence among his people by the ark and said, it's going to be my way, not your way. Finally, you know the story of the ark not just coming to Israel, but finally being brought by David up to Jerusalem on a brand new cart and on its way to the city of God, this box that would make Jerusalem the city of God, this box that would symbolize that God is among us, he is Emmanuel, God with us. The box tilted and shook on the cart And a man named Uzzah simply lifted his hand to steady the box. And God struck him dead. I'm about to make Jerusalem the city of my presence. And it will be done my way. And now here's the church. A couple comes and lies about what they give. And God strikes them dead in the presence of the church. I will establish the church the way I want it to be. My son died for it and bought it with his blood, and nobody gets a vote but him. Wow. Lest we think that somehow that's out of character, the finest example uh, in the face of which all of these examples pale is the cross of Jesus. Grace that is unparalleled. The love of God never before displayed to this degree is seen at the cross, and yet it is the most heinous, unjust act of violence perhaps ever perpetrated on the earth. God tore his son. God ripped his son. God allowed his son to be bludgeoned and beaten. And we're not so comfortable with the fact with the, the phrase "God killed his son," so we say, "God sacrificed his son." Is there a greater act of violence or injustice than the cross? And is there any greater love or grace that has come forth from God than that? Severe mercy, violent grace. God has done it many times throughout history. Is it because he's mean? Is God leaning away from kindness and mercy in favor of being stern and legalistic and sovereign? Has God forgotten one part of himself to do the other thing and to punctuate history with his truth? Is that what's going on? That's what it looks like from an either-or perspective because we are either-or people of imperfect character. At times, God does startling things which seem unkind to his people. Yes, us. But actually, these things are done to kickstart a new chapter in his revelation of his plan for his people and of his love for the world. I feel strange even saying it, but this is the truth. Before we move on to talk a little bit about God's character and where this comes from, Luke goes on to say that in verse 12, great fear came upon the church. Yeah, I'll say I bet, I bet they never forgot that gathering. Hey, remember when those guys died because they lied about giving? Yeah. But more likely, great fear is not about the giving going up at the Jerusalem Alliance Church. More than likely, the meaning of the phrase, great fear came upon the church, is that it worked. God got the attention of the church. What had been happening? We don't know. We're just hearing about all the wonderful, amazing miracles and spirit-filled events that took place. But something happened that necessitated a reminder, and God punctuated the formation of the church with an expression of his sovereignty that in our human eyes seems unkind. But because the church submitted to that, Because the church made the effort to get its arms around the both-and nature of God, that he is both powerful and loving, that the lamb is a lion and the lion is a lamb, that the master is a servant, that the great high priest is the sacrifice. How do you put those together? That's the both-andness of God, and it's found only in God. As they sought to put that together and to submit themselves to the fact that, you know what? This church is God's, and he gets to say how it happens. It happens. When they did that, notice the results of this encountering God as he says he is. There was this an additional spiritual infusion and another outpouring of the Spirit. Look at the verses there in 12 to 16. Because they reaffirmed the centrality and the sovereignty of God alone, the both and God to do it his way. New signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. A new oneness came into the church. There was a, uh, an inciting of both reverence for God and favor from God among the people. it Luke says more than ever new believers were added to the church. And they already had a lot. And there was a display of God's power specifically through physical healing. And that's an odd story, isn't it? That's another sermon in itself. How, how did that work? The sh- Peter's shadow fell on people and everyone was healed. Does God always heal everybody? Not, not in my understanding. But this time he did. Wow. I want to submit that it was this surrender of these Christians to say, to be reminded, to to be recalibrated, to be reoriented back to, oh wait a minute, this isn't about what we're doing, this is about what God's doing. He's the Lord of the church, we are not. For some reason, God needed to re-up that truth. The church submitted and the spirit was unleashed in incomparable ways. And the world changed. But let's talk about this both-and aspect of God. That God is never one or the other. He's, He's not just powerful or just loving. In his love, he brings his power to bear. In his expression of power, love is behind it. Always. In full measure. Regardless of what appears. Why? Because God doesn't respond to circumstances. God's power is an expression of who he is. God's love is an expression of who he is. It comes from his character, not just his action. God doesn't express himself faithfully. God is faithfulness. God doesn't show his holiness. Holiness is defined by his existence. God isn't just loving. God's character is love. God is love. And so nothing but love can come from him, even when people get killed in church for lying about giving. It's a loving act. Does it look like a loving act? Absolutely not. Is it a loving act? Yes. Because God can do no other. Do you see how, do you see the dissonance of that? Does that rub your soul in a way? You've got to be kidding me. This is who we follow? Yes. This is our God, our glorious God. So let's talk about God's character and balance just for a second. That God is holy does mean that there's no sin in him. John says God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. God has no spot or blemish. And Jesus, in the fullness of God, is the lamb without blemish, right? But that's that's just one of the perfections that holiness cover. Holiness really talks about the singularity of God, that there's only one God like God, and it's him. There's no one to compare God to. God is perfect in all his ways, the scriptures say. And and, and, and purity is one of the ways that he's perfect. He's perfectly pure, absolutely holy, no blemish at all. But he's also perfect in love and faithfulness and power. And in all ways that he reveals himself, he does it perfectly. As I said, they're expressions of his character. The challenge is no humans are like that. We always do either or. We do one or the other. Sometimes we're holy. Sometimes we're faithful. Sometimes we're loving. Sometimes we're harsh. And so we usually turn from the one to go to the other. It's why the scriptures say, speak the truth in love. Why do we need that reminder? Because it's very hard to speak the truth and be, be fully loving. And it's, it's really hard to feel really loving when we have to say hard truth, right? Right? The scripture calls us to both andness by the power of the spirit why because we're either or people we're either tell the truth or love people but it doesn't seem loving always to tell the truth and so the scripture says ask the spirit for this power because that's who God is it's not in our nature one big difference between our character and God's character is that God's character is always perfectly balanced Because of this difference between God and us, God's character and our character, one of the challenges we have in understanding who God is and what God is doing is that we tend to look at God through our either-or glasses. We tend to look at God and his activity through the lens of what we've come to experience and what we've come to understand. It doesn't seem like God was very kind right there. Maybe sometimes he's not. And a new form of God starts shaping A God made in our image, the image of our understanding, the image of our experience, the image of our feelings, the image of our hurts, the image of our joys, the image of our sorrows. And that God is never God. God is not who our experiences, our circumstances say he is. God is who he says he is. And there's part of the rub. So in this case, we look at the Acts 5 story, and as I said, nobody said, wow, isn't that wonderful that that happened? That was so gentle and kind of God. We're tempted to see God as we would see ourselves in this instance, that if, if, if we did that, it would be because we forsook grace and forgiveness and leaned toward righteousness and judgment. We, we left the either for the or. And that's how we judge God. That's how we define the story. I mean, after all, humanly speaking, people have done way worse things than lie about their tithing and and God let them live. In fact, the irony of ironies is the guy judging here by the wisdom of the spirit, the apostle Peter, he denied Jesus how many times? And what did Jesus do to him? He promoted him to be the apostle of the Jerusalem church. Seems a little inconsistent, doesn't it? I'm speaking humanly here. It rubs us the wrong side. What are you doing? He gets rewarded. These people fall dead. And all they did was lie about their money. And yes, they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's serious stuff. And yes, they were opposing the very plan of God for the future. But they didn't know that. They just thought they were being greedy. How about David? a liar, a murderer, and adulterer, all in one story, and God lets him be king over Israel, and the only punishment he seems to get is he's not allowed to build the temple. Only Solomon, his son, can do that. That doesn't seem fair. Abraham lied twice on the same journey to the promised land. And God made him the father of our faith. How do we resolve this? You see, God, unlike you or me, doesn't act the way that our circumstances define him. In this case, in Acts 5, though it doesn't appear to us, we can know for a fact that God's revelation of his holiness was still laced with mercy and love as he took these disobedient Christians to be with him in heaven. Just like my friend said about his son. I think that these, that God saw that my son was standing in the way of his purpose for his life. And so he just took him home to be with him. He wasn't going to let him disobey anymore in a broken world. Wow, that's off the meter for me. And so is this story. And yet, loved ones, as harsh as it seems through our human lens, God was using a simple act of disobedience to reinforce his sovereign desire that the church would move forward his way and not in its own way. Though the death of Ananias and Sapphira was traumatic and soul-rattling, in the end, only a kind father would reward these disobedient Christians by bringing them home to paradise. Yeah, I believe they did. They went to heaven. We might choose to see this as punishment, God reacting to their disobedience and, and violently, but we know that it's not because Jesus has already been punished for their sin and, and my sin and your sin. The punishment has already been meted out. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, there isn't, therefore, any, any more condemnation left. Even if God should change his mind and say, you know what, now I, I punish Jesus. But this guy has really pushed me over the limit. I'm going to nail him. He'd reach in the barrel of condemnation. There isn't any there. Because Jesus drank it all. Oh, the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. It wasn't punishment. (laughs) It was love. (laughs) It wasn't retribution. It was mercy. It was severe mercy. It was violent grace, yes, but it was something only a perfect and loving father could do. That's just weird, and I feel weird saying it, but I have to tell myself and you holy friends that this is our God. And it is good that he is perfect in all his ways. Though it's awfully hard to understand that God's kindness is holy and God's holiness is kind. God's grace is just and God's justice is gracious. God's mercy is righteous and God's righteousness is merciful. God has a tail of deliverance and softness and he has teeth of discipline. He is a lamb and he's a lion. And they're all 100% perfectly part of who he is. I don't pretend that, I'll, that I understand it or that I ever will. I just know that I have to move toward it and get my arms around it. And so do you. So how do we do it? How do we balance our discipleship with this? Well, first of all, we have to see God as he truly is. I don't recommend films Uh, because there's not really much worth watching that's produced in our culture anymore. But from time to time, there's something worth seeing because some of the gospel is in it. M. Night Shyamalan, a number of years ago, decades now, uh, uh, produced a a movie called Signs. It was billed as an alien movie, uh, humorously so. It it really makes uh, a joke about aliens. The... The theme of the movie is about this both-and aspect of God. The opening scene of the movie has uh, a Presbyterian minister taking off his collar and setting it on the dresser and saying, I'm done. He had just witnessed his wife killed in a horrible car accident that pinned her to a tree, (laughs) severed her body. Violent, violent. And basically he said, if that's who you are, I'm done. He defined God by the experience and threw God out with the bathwater. Later on in the movie, he's having a a discussion with his brother about this very fact, and he said, listen, i got to tell you, bro, um, there's either a God who is mysterious and beyond understanding because that's what it means to be God, or there isn't a God. Either you know a God who is not fully knowable, And who says that he has your best in mind, though sometimes things happen that you can't imagine that that's his best in mind. Really? You can't do better than this? Either you embrace that mystery that's beyond understanding, or you're on your own. Either there's a God who's present and frustrating and beyond understanding and uh, inability to explain, or there is no God. Your wife is killed? Well, too bad that happens i hope you're not next but there's nobody in control or there is someone in control and they don't do it your way and the reason you can't understand it's because you are not god and if you can define god and perfectly understand all of his workings then that means you're god worse than that if you demand that god be the one who like a celestial vending machine gives you what you want because you put in your time and money and sacrifice they did it right I want this. You should act this way in these circumstances, God. If you make that God, it's a make-believe God. It's not a God who can help you. That's what addiction is. That's what any pleasure, any solution apart from God really is. A Lord who will eventually make you a slave. Only the God who can disappoint you. Only the God who is beyond your understanding is the God who will never leave you or forsake you. Only the mighty warrior can be the friend who sticks closer than a brother. When we experience the severe mercy and violent grace of God, instead of interpreting God's actions through our feelings and experience, instead of forming God in our own image and demand that God toe the line of our demands, instead of worshiping the God of our desires and dreams, instead of those things, When the severe mercy and violent grace of God comes into our lives, like the first Christians, it's important that we see this as a reorienting balance. There's something that God wants us to understand about him that we've been moving away from without knowing it. And he's reminding us, come back. It's an invitation. Come and know me better. The balance that we're called to is the balance of a fresh God encounter beyond our experience, to come and know God in His presence at the foot of the throne. We walk into the throne room, a king who could crush us invites us to come sit on His lap and call Him Abba, to know that God again as He says He is. Severe mercies and violent graces are a call back to that balance of a fresh God encounter. Severe mercies and, and violent grace is a call back to the balance of of a renewed savoring of God's word in our lives. God's word is the way we, one of the ways we encounter God. But it's not a call back to God's word as a text to be studied and understood and parsed and exegeted only. It's a call to savor God's word as food. Like Jesus, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word, the bread of life that comes from God's mouth. Severe mercies and violent graces call us back to savor the word, the balance of savoring the word, the balance of prayer. It's easy to use prayer to talk to God about circumstances the way we think he should deal with them. There's nothing wrong with that. Only chil- Children can only do that, and we're called to come as children. Children ask for things that they shouldn't ask for, but they don't know it. And God allows us, ask, <laughs> ask what you will but he will never give us any less than his very best because he doesn't have less. God doesn't have second best to give us. He's perfect in all his ways. He only has perfect goodness to give us even when it looks like perfect cruelty. Severe mercies and violent graces call us back to a balanced prayer life where we pray not to get what we need or to have it our way, but rather we pray to align our will and reorient our perspective in God's presence because his ways are never our ways. The severe mercies and violent graces of God call us back to a balance of spiritual disciplines as well. Spiritual disciplines, not to show God how serious we are about our faith, but as a way to refresh ourselves, our inner lives in his presence. Not as a duty or a way to earn credit with God, but as a way to love him more deeply and intimately. Precisely because we don't understand him. That the more I feel pushed away by God, the more I'm going to move toward him. When the church did that, the spirit exploded in Jerusalem. In short, we respond with balanced discipleship to these irregularities, these incongruities that come into our lives. These things that make us want to run from the God that we need to embrace. The solution, part of the solution, is found in simply seeing it as an invitation. He's calling us. This thunder in our lives is a call. He's calling us. Come here. Come. Let's reason together. Be still. Know that I'm God. Come here. In short, when God seems mean, take it as a cue to know Him more deeply. He's interrupting our world at these times to show us great and mighty things that we've not yet known, and new things that he's doing that we've not yet perceived. Church, David, holy friends, may it be so. Let's pray. Do you take time right now just to be in God's presence just for a closing moment here? What's your Acts 5 story? What's that thing that has happened or is happening that in your human either-or thinking is pushing you away from God, saying, I, I'm not going to follow you? What's that thing that's holding you back from all that God wants to do and wants to be in your life? It's not about you. It's not that you've failed. It's that perhaps you haven't recognized that the thing that's pushing you away is really an invitation from the Father to come closer. Would you like to release it right now or begin releasing it? Hold your hands on your lap in front of you, open, palms up, and say something like this to God. Make it your own words, but saying, I release my right to be right. I release my right to have the justice the injustice resolved. I release my right to form you in my own image. I renounce the fact that I want to worship a God who doesn't exist, a God of my own making, and I announce that you are God the way you say you are, and I will seek you with all of my heart. I will allow this thing that's keeping me from you to become an invitation to pursue you to fall at your feet and hold you by the ankles like those women did on Resurrection Day and call you once again God and Lord. Jesus, you get to have it your way. I don't get a vote anymore. You are God and there is no other. You may not say it that way. There are better ways for you to say it to God, but don't let this be the last time you pray something like that. Sit in his presence and say, I don't get you. This doesn't seem right but I know that you are not the God that my circumstances are defining. I will choose to seek you as you say you are. Father, we need your help. (laughs) There's nothing in us that wants to be both and, or that can be. Our very fallen nature is either or, but we hold on to the promise that you are renewing us with ever-increasing glory day by day. Would you let this be part of it? Let this change take shape because if we can know you in this way, we will make you known in powerful ways. We want your spirit to be unleashed on York Alliance Church like it was released on Jerusalem Alliance Church. And we want to be people who know you and make you known as you are, as you have planned, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.